You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to another edition of Radio MMT. And again, this week we have James, who is uh, stepping in for Anne. How are you, James? James is good, Kev. It's great to be here. Happy to exercise my economics nerd brain again. Terrific, terrific. And uh, so this week, this week, we're going to continue the conversation that we had last week. Um, you know how Anne's on holidays. Uh, that's why you're here. But mm. incidentally, uh, Larry and Marissa, our listeners, um, need to be uh, informed that Anne is, is having a, a mental health break, a, a well-being break. She's taking time off to look after herself. And she's mm. not supposed to be listening to the show but she did, and she, <laughs> and she told me. She said, you're talking about well-being, but you didn't actually say what well-being was. Well, uh, well, great question. We sort of talked around well-being. We talked about well-being, but we didn't actually talk exactly. We, we didn't define it properly, mm. and so I got told off. You know, it's, a bit, it's a bit like, do you know, I've been describing uh, Anne as my as my very competent older sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like the well-intended but, but lame-ass uh, teenage brother. Mm. Um, so anyway, and, and I took her point and it was true. So uh, we're going to flesh out well-being a bit this year, uh, this week, um, yep. which is a good thing to do. Uh, we're going to have a letter from the Cape from Bill Mitchell. Uh, I'm going to have a little bit of a talk about post-referendum stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's kind of what we've got at the moment. Um, that's the show, essentially. Yeah. You know, a bit of this, a bit of that, and, and anything else that springs to mind, James? Yes, the economics brain is ready to go. Ready um, to go. I, I could talk about well-being for hours because that's where my research is. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you're doing a PhD in well-being. Isn't yes. Yeah. So the idea is uh, I wanted to look into what this idea of the well-being economy is. Uh, that, to me, seemed like a really nice way to affect change yeah. under the name of well-being economics. I was very interested in degrowth economics, but yeah. I feel the messaging and I guess the marketing of that degrowth is a missile word. It's very controversial. We right. need to degrow. Yeah. So yeah. well-being economy is kind of the positive version of that where we need to look at how an economy can actually create well-being for people and the planet. Yeah. I guess if you, if you use terms like degrowth, 
in our very neoclassical framing of, mm. of, of economics. We, we've been lulled into this into this uh, understanding that we need constant growth. You know, like yeah. everything's about uh, growth figures. I, I used to do um, uh, events and, and uh, I used to do corporate events. It was like it was like hell. And 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 all these corporate events, they'd say, right, what's our projections for next year? We need to have growth, growth, growth. So if you say the word degrowth in a capitalist society that's hell-bent on growth it's a bit like saying you're a socialist in the 1950s living in the in mm. the states they'll go well you're, you're you know you're, you're the traitor um yeah uh, so you have to find better words mm. because like you and i will go through all the detail but anybody else who's listening uh they just grab the catchphrases the, the headlines mm. so you say degrowth and they go you're a heretic you're going to destroy everything and you yeah go, no, no we're trying to fix everything and it's a, a, so yeah, words are important. Mm, mm. So there is that. Um, now, how should we do today's show? We would just jump into like um, uh, Bill Mitchell's letter from the Cape. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, you talk for a bit while I try and find it. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> uh, well, Bill talks about housing, I believe, in this, which is very important at this time. Yeah. There is a housing crisis going on, and I think there's a lot of myths about the housing market and housing crisis and supply and demand. I think the MMT lens can really help shed a light on that. Yeah, and I know that um, uh, Bill's uh, view on uh, views on public housing um, are quite personal because he was he's a product of of um, yeah. uh, of uh, public housing, uh, just like Albo. Just like Albo, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be an interesting conversation putting Albo and Bill in the same room. Yes, they'd, yes. They'd have a lot of uh, they'd have a lot of points of connection, but I reckon they might disagree on a few things as well. Anyway, I like listen to Bill. It, like he tries to give this neutral sort of um, persona, uh, being mm. an economics man, but uh, sometimes he slips. And from what I've heard in this one, he slips a bit. Let's uh, <laughs> let's have a listen. It's time for A Letter from the Cape with economist Bill, Bill Mitchell. Hello, and here is another episode in my Letter from the Cape podcast series. The National Housing Supply Council was abolished on November the 8th, 2013 by the Australian Coalition Government along with a number of other non-statutory government bodies. The claim was that these bodies were no longer needed or that there simply wasn't enough funds to keep them going. The National Housing Supply Council had been established in May 2008 with the purpose of monitoring housing demand, supply and affordability in Australia and to highlight current and potential gaps between housing supply and demand. While it was functioning, it regularly published estimates, projections, analysis and policy advice in relation to housing supply and demand. Its annual state of supply report became an embarrassment to government. The first report, published in 2009, the year after the Council began its work, told of growing shortages in housing supply, declining housing affordability and low-income families being trapped in the private rental market because they are unable to access adequate social housing. The report disclosed the growing gap between the demand for social housing, that is, accommodation that is within the financial reach of low-income families, and the supply. By 2011, the Council reported that the shortfall in such housing, 
which was both affordable and available to the lowest income households, had reached 539,000 units. The Council's last report was published in March 2013, just after the Federal Minister for Housing changed the terms of reference for the Council as a first step towards its ultimate abolition some eight months later. The embarrassment was because successive governments had abandoned their responsibilities for ensuring there was adequate housing available, particularly for poorer Australians. On January 1, 2023, in the midst of a growing housing crisis in Australia, the new Federal Labor Government established an Interim National Housing Supply and Affordability Council, which had similar goals to the original. A permanent body has now been announced and will commence work in December 2023. The interim body published one report in July 2023. The change in narrative from those original reports in 2009 to now is stark. The current narrative is replete with analysis of the role of government as an agency to provide de-risking for the market. What does that mean? De-risking is everywhere now. It refers to the process by which governments give handouts or guarantees or other inducements to reduce or eliminate the risk of private corporations investing in large-scale infrastructure projects. So the private investor knows that they will profit under all circumstances and the risk remains within the public sector. Last Monday, for example, the Shadow Chancellor in Britain, who in all likelihood will become the next Chancellor, which in Australian terminology is the Treasury Minister, outlines what she claims is a bold plan to revitalise Britain's failing and degraded public infrastructure. She said the central responsibility of government was to create a de-risked environment for private investment. Years of neoliberal neglect, justified on the basis that the government did not have enough money, has seen vital public assets such as water, transport, power and more privatised and become vehicles for private profit-seeking corporations to bleed dry. Short-termism exemplified. Other assets that remain in the public sector have been run down. Now... The solution, apparently, is more of the same. The same applies in most nations, given the global reach of the neoliberal ideology. Leading the de-risking charge has been the so-called Bidenomics in the US, with its central theme of promoting infrastructure development by reducing the risk for private investors. His administration announced billions in extra funding to build new, and revitalised public infrastructure after years of neglect. Sounds good. But the funds are being allocated to ensure that there is a secure revenue stream for private investors, corporate welfare. De-risking means that the government, which claims it cannot build an adequate supply of housing or other essential public infrastructure because it doesn't have the cash, 
commits to providing all sorts of guarantees, subsidies, grants and straight-out handouts to corporations. The de-risking agenda also promotes further deregulation, the so-called euphemistic regulatory streamlining, which reduces accountability and oversight with the inevitable result that the standards slip as even more shonky operators enter the construction sector. And of course, public-private partnerships are touted as ways in which the government can shift the risk of large projects onto the market, except in the case of essential infrastructure, such as hospitals, transport, utilities, etc., the risk can never shift. The government is always ultimately responsible for the supply of services in these areas. So all that happens is that there is a massive transfer of public money to private profiteering corporations and a diminished quality and scope of service as cost-cutting becomes the norm. The problem is that national infrastructure planning then becomes subjugated to what private corporations consider is profitable rather than what the nation actually needs. We are going to see a lot of this in the policy development seeking to address climate change. And given the massive housing shortage, particularly for lower income families, the market is poised to reap dramatic profits from government handouts and in return Australia will get poorly built, energy inefficient fields of roofs and concrete. It is no surprise that the Australian Labor government appointed the CEO of a major construction company as the chair of the Interim National Housing and Affordability Council. The starting point in responding to this neoliberal narrative lies in rejecting the fiction that the government cannot afford to fund the construction of public infrastructure and public housing. In the 1950s and beyond, that is the way the nation was built, and it provided first-class public infrastructure and adequate housing for those in need. We now have a shortage of some 800,000 social housing units because of government neglect, justified by the fiction they didn't have the cash. The federal government has all the cash it needs to build those houses, and the only issue is the availability of productive resources. But given it plans to de-risk the market to build more houses, then the resources will be there. Why should private corporations reap massive profits from government handouts when the same outcome, more houses, can be built at resource cost without the leakage to the top end of town? I'll be back next time. Until then, see you later. Three CR, here to stay. Where do we start with that, James? Where do we start? It's um, <sighs> there's so much in that. It's if, for starters, if we're talking about well-being, having a decent roof over your head mm. is is core to that, and and I know that um. Uh, uh, Bill's circumstances, uh, along with Albanese, uh, you're talking about circumstances post-war where uh, this stuff was needed, uh, yep. but it, but it's still needed now. Mm. Not, like 
The only difference between then and now is that we've got a lot more people sleeping on the streets. We, mm. we, we never used to have that. So well-being and having a roof over your head is crucial. But um, mm. how do we do that? Well, it's not just uh, having a roof over your head. It's also having a secure roof over your head as well, which is important for well-being. Housing insecurity, which is simply not knowing if you'll be living in the same place for an extended period of time, is really bad for well-being. You know, it's bad for your mental health. You know, you're constantly worrying whether your rent is going to go up or you're going to be evicted at any, any point. Um, it's bad for your physical health also in the cost of living crisis. You know, if you're paying rent, sometimes you have to forego other expenses, yeah. especially if rent goes up. The list goes on and housing is... It, I find it so interesting that housing, the way we talk about housing is housing is an asset rather than a basic need or a human right. Well, that's something that's shifted dramatically over, yeah. over the last um, uh, you know 30 years or so, and certainly in my lifetime. When I was... Uh, in my uh, late twenties, early thirties, uh, you could afford a house. Pe yeah. People could afford a house. It was uh, I was working as a as a casual theatre technician. Uh, my partner at the time was working as a youth worker. We weren't on big incomes. Mm. Uh, we could afford to buy a house. Uh, my daughter, who's now uh, around uh, the age that we were when we bought a house, wouldn't stand a hope in hell of, no. of touching anything like we had. Uh, it, her her prospects uh, are reduced to. You know, small apartments, and and that's because all the 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 profile of of housing has changed from being something to live in to uh, to something which you make money on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, anybody who's just looking for something to live in is priced out of the market by those people who are trying to make it. Well, not trying to make it, but are using their resources to turn housing into uh, a profit making venture. Mm. And then you see people owning five, ten homes. Yeah. that They live off. And I think the elephant in the room with all this housing talk, especially in politics, is that politicians are an investor class themselves. Yeah. A lot of them have nice housing portfolios. I know Albo himself has a $5 million housing portfolio himself. God, yeah, right, yeah. And this is happening all over the world as well. I know it's happening in Ireland with yep. a specific housing crisis, that the politicians have an incentive not to flood the market with new homes, new affordable homes, because that would affect their property it's going to portfolios. It's going to pull down their, their property portfolios, you know. Mm. And so I wonder how I wonder how Albo uh, reconciles this with himself, because mm. he's a product of public housing. He now has a, a portfolio. I'd like to think that I, I get the feeling that Labor is often trapped by neoliberal economics. Like, if yeah. remember when Shorten went into the two thousand and nineteen election and was talking about altering some of the the mix of, of uh, tax concessions, uh, and it was all going to be grandfathered, so it wasn't going to mm. affect anybody with, with current properties. He got slaughtered. Okay, if you yeah. if you even hint that you're going to do anything to lessen the the cash cow that comes out of the the, um, the property market at the moment, see you later. You're unelectable. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to think uh, Albo seems like a nice guy. I'd like to think that in his heart he would like to do more, but uh, you have to understand the political realities, I guess. Uh, if you're on the opposition benches, you can do nothing. If you're mm. in, if you're in power, you might be able to tweak away at it. But big changes aren't uh, warmly accepted by the electorate, especially with that sort of stuff. No, no, not at all. And you know, he's hamstrung by the neoliberal logic that both pa major parties subscribe to. And just to recap what neoliberalism is, because it's a big word, yep. and I often see that big word and go, oh boy, what does that mean? Yep. It kind of means three things that governments do. They deregulate trade, yep. they 
deregulate internal regulation, so less rules, less laws, less things uh, inhibiting actors to do certain things. And it's also massive privatization. Yeah. And it's all about the idea that government should get out of the way of business, let the free market do its thing. Let, and it, let it find that, its natural balance. Yep, and that, in their mind, is the most efficient way to get well-being for everyone well, at if the you end listen, of the day. If, if you listen to Bill's talk, then he uh, he mentions how the Labor government, the previous Labor government to uh, the one we're in now, had set up uh, a, uh, a department to look at public housing. Mm. The coalition government promptly uh, abolished that, <laughs> uh, uh, and now the Labor government has set one up again. So... You can see that the Labor government has some intent to do the right thing, mm. but it is captured by neoclassical economics uh, and it's sort of got like a, a foot in both camps. It, it, it wants to do more progressive things, but if it tries too much, it's going to get voted out and then nothing will get done. So yeah. so it's like it's, I, I, I can understand the frustration um, uh, and I know people in the Labor Party and I know that they're frustrated by a lot of uh, compromise policies. Mm. But it's kind of the nature of, of politics that if you if you don't compromise, you are sidelined and you mm. and then you do nothing. So yep. do you want to do something? Do you want to do a half-assed compromise something or nothing except scream from the sidelines? Uh, it's mm. it's tricky. Um, wouldn't yeah? It's it's not a good position to be in. But it, this, but this all comes from like the whole uh, the whole privatisation thing. You know, so so Labor now has this um, future housing fund. Yes, which. Which is an ass about way of funding public housing, but they yeah. are, they are well they're not looking at public housing they're looking at uh, social housing or it's it's a different model it's not not straight out government owned um, uh, property it's it's like these partnerships they do with the private sector mm. and they're funding that with a future fund which is supposed to raise income so that the books balance and it's it's all it's all captured by neoliberalism this is this yeah. is this is what the um the greens were, were kind of fighting them saying you, you don't need to do this yeah. um but they're so, sort of saying look I, you know in reality we don't but it, well sort of technically we don't but in reality we have to appear that we're appeasing the um the neoclassical economists yeah it's a, well i mean the housing thing itself you know we're going to take 10 billion dollars i think it was yeah put it on the stock market yeah then any money we make back will use to build houses. Yeah. And then you just think, why don't you just use that $10 billion to build houses that you're putting on the stock market? It's just a big gamble, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like, they, they'll say that um, uh, by doing so, they're balancing the books. But if there's one thing we've got to get rid of, it's this concept that you need to balance the books. Yeah. You just don't need to balance the books. Governments need to run deficits to support the economy, you know, and I'm going to scream this from the from the uh, every opportunity is that is that deficits are essential for running proper economies mm. you might run up the occasional surplus for a reason but deficits are the norm that's yep. that's how economy that's the, the foundations of an economy you know, is government deficits if you had no government deficits your, your economy would be wiped out yep. so so the whole concept that they need to invest in the stock market to raise money to pay for uh, any sort of social housing program is completely bogus. It's Ex a bit silly, isn't it? <laughs> except that they need to appease the neoclassical economists who yeah. will scream, tear them down, and and they'll they'll lose the next election if they if they seem to be, you know, so called incompetent. Mm. <sighs> it's a, annoying. A government deficit is more money in our pockets. It's a surplus for the rest of us. Correct. Government, Government deficit, deficit, private sector surplus. Exactly. Yep. 
Not, um, that, that's not difficult to understand. How come nobody understands that, James? Well, we're being conditioned to think a certain way, haven't we? Oh. Growth is good. Everyone's rational and oh. self-interested, and, yeah. and the deficits are bad. You know, it's just all. What was the cogn- cognitive dissonance? Was cognitive the, dissonance? That's yeah. that's the, um, the the foundation of the whole bloody thing. It's um, it's a uh, very very annoying. Hey, did you know? Just out out of a uh, uh, like, here's an interesting sort of, and this is typical of, of how our economy works, mm. is that Trump's dad, you know. Um, uh, What's his name? Trump? What's his first name? I've forgotten already. That's good. Uh, it's Donald. just Daddy Trump, isn't it? <laughs> Dickhead Trump. No, Donald Trump, that's right. Um, his dad uh, made his fortune by mm. uh, receiving government money to build apartments for returned soldiers after World War Two. Mm. That's that's how the Trump fortune was, uh, was accumulated, was direct government funding. And they said, "Go and build some apartments and house all the, all the um, returned soldiers." Uh, so when you know Trump talks about being a self-made man, etc., no, it's that's a really clear example of how governments can inject money into the economy. But it's also a way of how it's sort of uh, it's polarized. That should have been spread more even. Mm. Like, and this and this is uh, another thing that Bill was saying through the um, through his uh, his talk before was that. This idea that governments need to engage with pub, uh, with private sector firms and shore them up, pump money into them to make sure that mm. they're safe and that they can build these these projects. Why? Why not just do, like we used to have a public service? We used to have the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works that, and all these the SEC, Telecom, yeah. etc. Uh, and and we were told that um, that they were too inefficient. That government organisations were inefficient. I, I'm a telecommunications cabler. I've got my ticket. I haven't done much of it. You look at the old telecom stuff, it is mm. absolute gold class. Like those guys spent the time to make sure that the system was rock solid, you know, yep. um, and the workmanship in it is magnificent. Mm. Compare that today, where you've got your um, person coming in doing your MBN connection, and they'll just smack a hole through a wall, drag a cable <laughs> through, and get out of there as quickly as they can because they're on a fixed price, buddy, um, you know, uh, installation fee. And, yep. and the quicker they get it done, the better. Uh, and we're, we're saying that this is a better system. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know they no. call it efficient. Efficient, but it's an efficiency. What what what's efficiency all about? Efficiency for a really good product or efficiency for generating profit? You know, the yeah. two different things. Exactly, exactly. And and I would I would suggest that anything uh, any inefficiencies of the public service would be outweighed enormously by the rorts of the private sector doing the same job. Mm. When you add in the 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 uh, advertising and the and the uh, the competition that they need to you know the skullduggery that they need to win a contract and all that sort of stuff, it it's. To me, I know what I would prefer to have as a as a system of um, of infrastructure. That's- to bring it back to an economic term, what businesses are really good at is generating externalities. Right? They can do things really efficiently, but often that comes at the cost of the social world and the environmental world. You know, social and environmental externalities, which is basically saying they they often make a mess. They make a mess of the environment by doing things hyper efficiently. Yeah. They make a mess of communities by doing things according to profitable efficiency. And this comes back to our our um, topic of well-being is is yeah. the, the only thing that you're looking at in a neoclassical model is the profit the, yeah. the profit margin. That's it. That's that's the measure of whether something is being done well or not. How much yeah. money did you make? If you made a lot of money, apparently it went really well. Uh, and when you when you value the uh, the result of something purely by the profit margin and disregard everything else, your your model is is very shallow and very incomplete, yeah. and that's the problem we have with well being. Now, um, 
I'm still. This is kind of a bit off topic, but uh, we're sort of winding down after the uh, the referendum, the yeah. the S twenty three referendum. So I'd like to go half into the, the the midway break of this show, just reflecting on that a bit. Mm. And there was a lot of there was a lot of disappointment about the result of the referendum from mm. anybody who was involved in the Yes campaign. Um, and uh, I was involved in the Yes campaign, and I was disappointed because no states got up. And you looked at the figures, and you went, "Oh, this is dismal." And I looked at it a bit more. So there's a 40% yes vote. Yes. Right? Now, the profile of a yes voter is somebody who actively wants positive change, progressive change. Mm. You don't you don't vote yes by mistake, right? Yep. You, you vote yes with intent. And you mm. go, I'm voting yes because I realise that there's a problem that needs to be improved and I'm going to try and do something about it. So there's 40% of the vote. Mm. You've then got the progressive no vote, which essentially says the same thing. It says we have a problem, it needs to be fixed, but what you're suggesting is inadequate. Yep. A lot more needs to be done. But essentially you've got the yes and the progressive no vote with the same aim. Yep. And this is typical of the left. We always um, have different ways of doing things and we can mm. fight and squabble about that. But essentially that's the same camp. The progressive no and the uh, yes both recognise that there's a problem which needs to be fixed. And so that would put it at about 45, 50% of the vote because you've got mm. 40% of the yes is yes and then there'd be some percentage of the no vote would be progressive no. Yep. So there's about half half the vote saying that we need change. Yep. We need change. So then you've got the other half of the vote, which is the no vote. Mm. Well, I was out at the um, uh, the polling booths uh, and uh, handing out um, uh, literature and, and I was in South Dandenong uh, where English was a second language for... 95% of the people there. Mm. And I simply asked a question, do you understand, uh, do you, got any questions, and do you understand what the referendum is about? And they sort yep. of go, yeah, no, actually. Yeah. And, and, and they say, what's it about? And so I'd tell them what it's about, and they go, oh, well, that's all good. So uh, uh, so what I could discern from that was that I reckon about half and half was half of them were redneck racists and the other half were just misinformed and, and were, uh, what would you say, insecure yeah. Uh, the the seeds of doubt had been sown by the no campaign. Yep. And they convinced the other half of their camp that oh look there's something dodgy going on here so so don't vote for it because like you know the, the sky's going to fall in and all that sort of stuff. So you could say that a uh, rough guess half the no camp from that side would be racist to some degree and the other half were misinformed. So if you've got Half of 50% is 25%. We've got 50% who want progressive change, another 25% of people who are misinformed. But when I spoke to them, they understood the problem and were on board. Yeah. So I reckon if you could get the information to that other 25%, you'd have 75% of the population who would back progressive change. Yeah. It's just that it's really hard to do in a referendum because if you've got 25 to 30% of your population who are racist to some degree, they will tear that campaign down and they did I was there listening to the the words that were being coming they didn't even understand they're saying they're going to change the law and I said they're not changing the law they're changing the constitution it's a different thing do you understand <laughs> yeah. what the constitution is and these yeah. no campaigners didn't understand what the constitution was and we're just spinning stuff you're sort of going right well you know uh, and they were very effective so yeah. so I, I have I'm a little more optimistic about the uh, the result than I first was Right, because I think that if we could get, and this is part of the truth-telling process, is that if we could get that message out there, there is progressive change. The one thing that really p 
pissed me off, and this is the same with everything, is this line that, oh, it's going to cost you. I think it was Clive Palmer said that first the voice, then the invoice. And it's part of this same old ridiculous line that uh, that it's going to cost, which is, it, it's just, it's going to not, it, well, yes, it's going to cost, but it's not going to cost you or me. It's going to be a public expense. Yeah. Well worthwhile. And we spend things in the public on many, many things. Yep. Submarines, all sorts of stuff. Mm. Why not spend some money, some money on good, some good things? Anyway, so that's that's my little rant. After it's a good the, rant, Kev. It was it's a good it, rant. It's supposed to be a little bit of optimism. I think we need to um, uh, head to a bit of a break, uh, capture our thoughts, and then we'll come back and talk about um, well-being because that's what we're supposed to be talking about today. You're with Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us.
Anne and Kev on Radio MMT. At 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. And wherever you get your podcasts. Economics for the rest of us. So during the break, we heard from the Warumpi Band. I love the Warumpi Band. Legends. Um, That's from quite some time ago. Let's talk about well-being. Yes. James, now you're doing a PhD on well-being. Yes. And, 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 but you're also talking economics, and so it's the intersection of economics and well-being. Well, it should be obvious because yeah. economics is the distribution of resources in a community, and that should equate to well-being. What are your thoughts? Well, just to start off, I think the easiest definition of well-being, there's a lot of different definitions, as with everything, especially in the academic world, but the easiest definition of well-being that makes sense is it's just a multi-dimensional understanding of health. So you call it holistic health. So, you know, there's physical health, there's mental health, but there's also economic health, you know, your income and your resources. There's spiritual health, you know, how you connect to the world around you. Um, you know, there's emotional health, you know, how are your emotions, how are you feeling, are you feeling good about your life, short-term and long-term. So it's this concept that kind of encompasses your whole world and basically evaluates how you're going. So if you have well-being, things are pretty bloody good. I have studied the topic for almost two years now, and I'm kind of concluding that not many people in the world actually have well-being. It's a kind of a scarce thing because of the way our economic system works. It's uh, I've seen some stuff on this, and, and the correlation between being wealthy and well-being is not well it doesn't often doesn't correlate you, you no. hear of, you hear of communities who uh, on paper aren't wealthy but their well-being is right up there yeah uh, and then you have people who are quite wealthy and their well-being is not up there i yeah. think i think you could be wealthy and have well-being and i think you could be un, not have wealth and have poor well-being at the same time mm. so uh, talk about that How, what's happening there well wealth has been found to not correlate with well-being it's a very case by case thing um what you can say about wealth is that it solves all your money problems, right? So right. you can have the resources to then get well, get healthy. You know, we all know really wealthy people who don't seem very happy, who aren't very healthy. Mm-hmm. And that's a failure both on their part, but also society's part to help them be their best self. Um, the other thing about well-being is it's a case-by-case thing. It depends on each person what their well-being looks like. So I draw on um, Amartya Sen's work a lot. Do you know Amartya Sen? Ken? Never, never heard. Never so heard. he is an Indian academic, uh, economist, welfare economist, and he coined what was called the capabilities approach, which basically says people want to live a good life, and to help them live a good life, you need to ensure that they have appropriate functionings and capabilities. So capabilities as in the ability to do what they want in the world. So this society structures things in a certain way where you can only do certain things. And the capability approach says we need to look at what people can do and what they can't do and remedy that to help people live a life that they value. So so just fleshing that out a bit, so yeah. rather than finding some crap job just because you have to, because, uh, yeah. because you need money, uh, you're talking about finding something that you're suited to, and and that will 
uh, obviously contribute to your well-being. Yeah. Uh, this this actually ties into the job guarantee uh, conversation quite a lot. So, it does. Uh, so, so for anybody that's um, uh, familiar with the job guarantee, that's a, a an obligation of the government to provide work to anybody who's looking for work, but in it's voluntary and, and it, it needs to be in something which is um, fulfilling and, and it redefines um, uh, work uh, in, in many in many respects. Mm. It, it also draws upon this the, the notion that um, uh, to be to to feel well, you need to have you need to be socially connected. You need to have some sense of community. And I, and I guess it's no surprise that in a neoliberal system which highlights the individual and Maggie Thatcher said it herself there is no such thing as society yeah. um, we, we are all just individuals and so neoliberalism is an attack on on well-being because it, it disconnects us from uh, from society I guess yes so the neoliberal understanding of well-being stems from the neoliberal understanding of what humans are and so neoliberals assume that humans are fundamentally self-interested creatures that maximize their pleasure and minimize their pain and that they are rational. That's their assumption of what human nature is, which is a very flawed assumption of people because people aren't totally self-interested. Lots of people dedicate their lives to people around them, to their communities, to their planet, you know. In a place like 3CR, totally disproves that assumption about what humans are because so many people in here are doing stuff for the world around them that often is quite a painful thing. It is a painful thing to be an activist often. Sure, and, and, and I'd suggest that any sporting team flies in the face of that too. People do sport. It often costs some money. Um, mm. You know, It's not until you get to the elite level that you're going to start making a buck uh, for the other 99% of us. Mm. Uh, why are we there? It's because we like being in teams. We like being involved in community activities. It's a way of, of connecting to For to the love of us. the game, for the love of life, for the yeah. love of all this. Yeah. So... When we talk about well-being from a neoliberal perspective, it's about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. And that's basically the calculus. It's kind of like a narcissistic approach to... to it is. It <laughs> is. And that's, and that's your base model. That's, that's the base unit of your whole economic structure is yep. a narcissist. And that's their argument for the free market. Everyone's self-interested. Everyone will do what's good for them. So let government get out of the way so people can do that. Yeah. Now, that's been... F- fundamentally disproven as a model of society you know yeah governments make markets possible and mmt stresses that yep it's impossible to have markets without someone who sets the rules of the game the rules of exchange the infrastructure so people can get to the market these sorts of things so it's a very flawed view of um of human nature fundamentally at this and a very flawed view of the world and how it works so, and I guess this feeds into the intersection between uh, well-being and economics, because yes. if if we are trapped in a system, and I, I refer to us as hamsters in the wheel, that we've got to keep on spinning stuff. Uh, this this economic structure loves us to be in debt, mm. um, because when you're in debt, you have to keep on working for, uh, working yep. for uh, some way, of, 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 and if you're forced to work, the corporations love that because that they can use you, they can exploit you, and, yep. that, and that's that's how we operate. Uh, so. Here we have a prime example of an economic system that is set up to undermine well-being. Mm. It, it it disconnects people. It regards us as individuals. It it throws away the notion of society, uh, and it turns us into slaves. Yep. Um, there's plenty we could do to change that. That that um, uh, that to me seems quite apparent. One of the things I'd like to talk about mm. is. The measurement of our society is uh, done 
by the GDP, the yes. gross domestic product, yep. which which basically quantifies how much money has been spent mm -hmm. uh, in in our economy, uh, and that's the measure of success. You got any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. <laughs> I so, um, GDP is the proxy for a society's well-being right yep. now. It says the more goods and services we have, the more stuff we make, the more money there is, the better off everyone is because everyone's self-interested, everyone's seeking pleasure. GDP is a proxy for progress. So, it was it was uh, thought up by Simon Kuznets back in the 30s prior to World War II, just out of the Great Depression. Right. And he said himself... I'll tell you what he said, because I've got this quote. You've got the quote. I've got this quote in front of me. It's a great me. quote. Uh, it says, uh, this is from Simon Kuznets, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be in inferred from a measurement of national income as defined by GDP. Goals for more growth should specify of what and for what. So yep. you've got the... <laughs> You've got the architect of GDP, the guy that invented GDP, who came up with the, the the notion of GDP, yeah, saying that it's not a good measurement. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, the Americans pioneered the use of GDP. You know, it was essential for their World War II effort. And then upon that, the entire world economic system after World War II was promoted by the Americans based around GDP. This is the way for everyone to develop so that they can be healthy and well and have a good society and we're all wealthy and prosperous. You, you say that, but I've got another quote here as well. Here and, we go. And I got these, I got these from, uh, from uh, Associate Professor Philip Lorne, okay? Mm. And, he, and he starts off this thing. So this is, this is from Robert F. Kennedy. So this is going to be during the 60s at some stage. So you can see that there's a battle going on between our ideologies here. And he says, when I find it, he says... Uh, too much and too long, we seem, to have, we seem to have surrendered community excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. The GNP, which is the gross national product, which is the same as the gross domestic product, mm. it's the American term for it. The I'm going to call it the GDP. The GDP counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our, high, our highways of carnage. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short except that which makes life worthwhile. Full stop. Okay, so this this is post-war America. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and still there's this notion that, um, uh, that material wealth does not equal well-being. Mm. There was an economist uh, by the name of Easterlin who proved this in the 70s, that material wealth does not correlate with subjective well-being, which is how you feel about your life. Are you happy? Is your life going well? They're, they're not connected. Right. They're two very different things. So when we talk about GDP, when you see GDP referred to, it is a flawed assumption of how a nation's going. It's a flawed measurement. Yes. Of, 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 it's used all the time as, as an, in, an indicator of how well we're doing. Yep but it has nothing to do with well-being. It's like uh, assessing the entire health of your car based on how the air conditioning's going. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just it's a small, small, small part of a much larger thing. I'd even say how fast it can go. Yeah. Like, like how fast can That's this better. car go? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, is it a good car? Is it a safe car? Does it meet each other's uh, purposes? Is it efficient? 
No, and, it goes fast, mate. She's a beaut, you know, and, and that's it. What direction is the car going into? It'll be driving towards a beautiful Doesn't mountain? matter, mate. She or, goes she goes 100, 100 miles an hour, you know. It's, if you don't look at where you're going, you might <laughs> drive off a cliff, which is exactly what we're worried about now with the economy. Yeah. So there are a lot of people working at the moment to find a better measurement of how a society's going than GDP. And the one that we often like here on this show yep. is the genuine progress indicator. This, and this is by this is by now. You're an academic, aren't you? Because it, in the is, making. Well, this is associate <laughs> professor at the University of Newcastle, Philip yep. Warren, who uh, uh, I've met a couple of times, and is a lovely guy. What's an associate professor? Uh, As opposed to a professor. Anyway, look, he's... it's 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 all convoluted language. It doesn't mean a thing to me. They've got they're they're basically doctors. That's okay. all you need to know. No worries. Anyway, look, look uh, Philip is a lovely, lovely guy yeah. and smart as a whip. Um, mm. And so he has uh, constructed this thing called the uh, the GPI, the Gen- the General Progress Indicator. Yep. Okay. Um, do, you, do you know much about it at all? Yeah, I know bits and pieces. So yeah. I've, I've done my preparation. Sure. And. The best thing about the GPI is that it actually accounts for environmental and social losses. So we talk about externalities, you know, economic gains often are made at social and environmental losses. You know, we log native forests and we destroy communities so we can build big houses for rich people, that sort of thing. Right. So, so there's, a, there's a positive effect and there's a negative effect. Yes. And so straight away, we've got a balance sheet where uh, your... If you were talking about GDP, anything that's spent money is regarded as a positive. Yeah. Uh, and so it just adds them all together. It doesn't d- distinguish between whether it's a it has a positive influence or a negative influence on the mm. uh, on the well being. It just says if you're spending money, it's good. So this yep. straight away brings in the nuance of uh, that if you're spending money, is it is it doing good or not? Yes. Okay. So it splits the index into three categories. There's economic. Yep. There's environmental yep. and there's social. Right. So the economic one has a lot of different economic words like personal consumption expenders, in- income inequality, all that. Don't necessarily need to worry about that at this point. The important thing of the GPI are the environmental and social indicators. So it's about 26 different indicators that make up this en- index of genuine progress, right. not just growth. Yep. Growth for what? Yeah. What's progress? Okay, and just to give an example of that, if you have uh, excellent GDP, mm. that means that Gina Reinhardt's doing very well, but we've yep. got people sleeping on the streets, so it doesn't uh, it doesn't indicate anything other than s- there's a lot of money, but it doesn't tell you who who it's going to or what it's doing or how it's helping yeah. anyone. So that's the flaw of the of the GDP. This is becoming far more nuanced. It's saying yes. radio. So so. Uh, how's this? How's this working? Who's it working for? Uh, and uh, yeah, that, that's the general nature of it. Mm. So just to reel off a couple of the indicators in there, just yep. to show what it's all about. So in addition to all the economic gains and losses, it takes into account the cost of water pollution, the cost of air pollution, the cost of noise pollution, loss of wetlands, loss of farmland, soil quality or degradation. It goes on to actually stipulate. All right, we're having economic gains, but these gains are not good if it comes at the losses of native forests, of soil quality, of soil degradation. And these are things which GDP just does not cover. It does not. And in the social one as well, it actually values housework and parenting. So under GDP, all the work you do at home to keep your house in order, to raise your kids, to look after people, that's seen as leisure under GDP in but economics. It's worth nothing because there's no, there's no money attached to it. They say it's unproductive and it's valuable. 
Which is which is a large part of the status of women post World War Two and probably yeah. before then as well, where they're saying, well, you know, you're doing all this stuff, but it's not worth anything because not not earning any money. It's it's a <laughs> it's just silly because the most productive thing is raising kids who are healthy and well who will contribute to the betterment of this whole society. It's the future of our generation. It's the basis it's the of, future of, of our economy. existence for in, in most communities is is um, uh, raising the next generation. Yeah, and the baby boomers are aging at the moment and we're going to need a huge workforce to look after them, to care for them. And where does that come from? It comes from the generation being raised now. It's the most productive thing. And the genuine progress indicator actually values that, where GDP does not. And that is enormous. It factors it all in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really good one. Um, GPI isn't everything, of course. Yep. So in my work, I'm going to be looking at a lot of well-being frameworks that governments are adopting as well. So governments at the moment are tasking their statistical agencies, like the Australian Bureau of Statistics, to collect numbers on well-being in the country. And that differs from country to country. And no one's really looked at how they're defining well-being or what they're measuring. And so that's what I'm going to task myself with. Excellent. There are over 20 countries around the world who are doing this. Um, some countries are actually calling themselves a well-being economy. Right. Um, and I'm going to look at all of them and see what they're thinking. That so, sounds like such a worthwhile task, James. Yeah. It's, it's uh, it, Because I, I was looking up some of this GPI stuff, mm. um, but I can't see how it's being applied. Like it's, uh, I, I'd love to see uh, some, some different um, uh, outcomes of, of a GPI measurement mm. uh, you know, from year to year to see whether that's improving or not. That sort of measurement, to me, I would have thought would be essential, um, mm. and yet I can't. Uh, maybe I'm not lo looking properly, but I can't find the information. It's it's not widely applied. Yeah, it's it's in its infancy in yeah. terms of getting into governments and governance and policy. So it's going to be hard to actually see how it affects things until we can look at it for five, ten years. How have we gone? And you surely know? this is this is these are crucial measurements, you know. Uh, yeah. And this is where, uh, if you're looking at a, a GPI. Um, where things like the term degrowth and and maybe degrowth should be called rebalance something more positive. Yeah, I like degrowth and regrowth. <laughs> degrowth and regrowth. It's it's kind of like like we we're saying before. Language is difficult, so if you use a negative term, it's it it, it puts people off straight away. Because yeah. remember, people are not on this station and not in this community. But people are stupid, right? You have to do <laughs> have to remember this. They do. They read stupid newspapers and, and they and they make stupid decisions. They're clever and they're lovely in, in some things. This is something you, if you ever get involved in politics and you go door knocking and you start yeah. meeting people, random people, as opposed to your little bubble, um, you roll up to these houses uh, and you see all these lovely people doing amazing things who are absolutely clueless. Uh, yeah. uh, and and that's that's what we're dealing with. So if you're going to use a term like degrowth, these people they'll have it framed to them by the Murdoch press or some or something, going that, that we're all we're going to collapse society. We're going to yeah. pull apart stuff. You have to find the right words to convince these people that what you're trying to achieve is in their best interests, mm. which is difficult. Well, it all comes back to another economic concept as well of loss aversion. So Daniel Kahneman and a number of other behavioural economics were looking at how people don't actually do rational things, um, which is the basis of neoclassical economics. So loss aversion is a cognitive bias that describes why, for individuals, the pain of losing is psychologically twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. So loss hurts 
more, then that, gaining is good. Gaining <laughs> is good. And, and I guess that, that uh, underlines why it's so easy to pull a referendum apart, is that you, yeah. can, you can apply yourself to people's uh, fear of loss. Uh, it's a lot more effective than uh, applying to their sense of goodwill or, or, or progressive thoughts. Yeah, and, you know, you look at the No campaign, and a lot of that was based on you're going to lose if this goes on, you know, and it's a very powerful thing. Yeah. It's very powerful. You know, the fear of losing something is a lot more than the, the, the goodness of gaining something in people's eyes. Can I just tell you something? from, from Something that's taken me quite some time to learn is that loss can be very liberating, James. Mm. Uh, it's, it, when you lose stuff, you realise, actually, I didn't need it anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I'm, I'm very influenced by the voluntary simplicity movement, which is associated with degrowth, which is essentially saying simplify your life you don't need much to live on to live a good life it's very buddhist in nature yeah and one of the professors in my master's degree samuel alexander he's a big degrowth proponent and he's a big proponent of voluntary simplicity and i would say learning about that stuff and actively simplifying my life where i don't have many things i don't have much money i don't buy much food you know very simple i, yeah. I cook pasta a lot yeah. you know yeah but the less things I have, the happier I am. You know, there's a quote in Fight Club. You know, I've got to quote oh, that movie. That is such a good movie, Fight Club. The, the things you own end up owning you. Correct. And correct. I took that to heart. And it has bettered my life. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Life is about community, not about how many things you have. Speaking of community, we're heading off to the Union Club Hotel after this show mm. to, to go and catch up with other like-minded people for a, a, a drink and a, a, a feed, maybe. Um, feel free to come and join us, the Union Club Hotel in Collingwood. Uh, we've got to go, James. We've yep. done another show. Uh, we've got uh, Mafalda coming up next with Vicky. Um, we've got to get the hell out of here. So thank you so much for uh, filling in for Anne for the last couple of weeks. We're going to have you back on uh, as often as we can because <laughs> I like you. And so, hey. and so Anne, you're a nice, you're a nice fella. So, thank you. <laughs> so we'll do this all again. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kev. No problems. We're going to go. Bye. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week, Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. We've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? 
Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole range of, like, macroeconomic music that I could bring into the show. Yeah, yeah, but we really need to do marginal productivity theory, not to mention the natural rate of unemployment. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.